Let me pray with you and uh, we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for this time to, uh, to be together. God, we pray for uh, you to be glorified in our lives and glorified through the life of this church. Um, thank you, Lord, that you're with us and you're faithful to your word. And God, as we're praying, we know that you're working. Oftentimes, even when we don't see you and see the results, Lord, we, we trust you. and thankful that we can cast all our cares upon you. Lord, we just lift up all these. Thank you for a good report for Jackie. We pray that he and Joe would get home safely tonight. Lord, we pray that you would comfort the Lauderdale family, the passing of Mr. Stevens, and continue to pray for Abby and Paul Voiles. And we ask that you bless the Fosters tomorrow as they gather to. And we, and we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that there is an answer to, to death. There's no... The sting of death has been removed for us in Christ, so we're grateful for that. Lord, would you guide us tonight as we uh, think that we would learn more about your word and that our faith would be made stronger for those who teach, that we would uh, uh, just, this would be helpful to us. And uh, we ask that you bless Don and the choir as they prepare and um, pray you bless our students tonight. Bless Jack as he's preaching tonight. We, we ask that your anointing would be upon him. You'd use him. We pray you bless Brother Jason and the kids' children's ministry and those in the nursery and that our kids would be safe and uh, loved. And so we thank you for those who are serving there. And uh, so bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me make a few comments, and then you have a sheet, and I'm going to, if you want to work on that by yourself, or if you want to partner up with somebody, but uh, I want to give you a riddle, okay? So I got a riddle for you. You all like riddles? Can you think of a place in the, in the Bible where there was a riddle? Huh? Samson, right. Right, so he has a, he has a riddle against those Philistines, and... Um, he loses, he loses the, he loses, doesn't he? Remember, they go to his uh, girlfriend <laughs> and they just pastor and pastor, she gives an answer and there's one of the, one of the worst lines in the Bible. So when he paid off the debt, you remember what he said to his, to those he lost his bet? He said to him, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you would have never known the answer to this riddle. That, that's, that wouldn't be too politically correct today. <laughs> but anyways, I, do y'all think that's funny? Or, I, I always kind of like that when I read that. If you had plowed with my heifer, you'd never. There's a riddle. Okay, here, here's the riddle. Who am I? First, I was killed by an enemy, soaked in water and dried in the sun where I lost all my hair. After that, I was stretched out and scraped with the knife blade, folded, and a bird's feather traveled across my surface. Finally, I was bound and covered with skin, gilded and beautifully decorated. You know the answer? Can we read it again? All right. Who am I? First, I was killed by an enemy, soaked in water, and dried in the sun where I lost all my hair. 
After that, I was stretched out and scraped with a knife blade, folded, and a bird's feather traveled over my surface. Finally, I was bound and covered with skin, gilded and beautifully decorated. Okay. Huh? It's, uh, the answer would be the Bible. One of the early uh, codexes, one of the early Bibles. So, uh, yeah, killed by an enemy. So, was written, right? The earliest scrolls were written in this. You'll get into the quiz. Well, I'll talk about what it was written on, but it's, it's a Bible. I'll explain it a little more. So, um, so that's kind of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. I hope it's been helpful to you. Um, where did the Bible come from, specifically the Old Testament? And I'm going to transition tonight into the, little, uh, into the New Testament. So how did we get the Old Testament? Where did it come from? How was it formatted? How was it put together? And, um, and so I, the, the reason I think this is important um, is for us to be more effective in understanding this is, is especially for our kids, high school students, college students, I think this is especially helpful for them. Um, most of us here tonight, you know what you believe about your salvation. You know what you believe about the Bible and, and you're not going to be swayed. But a young person gets away, grows up, raised in church, gets away at a university and everything that they've, that's been instilled in them, what they believe about marriage, what they believe about scripture, what they believe about alternative lifestyles, about abortion, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, um, absolute, I mean, anything you think of is going to be undermined. If you go to a state school, take a science class, biology class, literature class, it's all going to be undermined. And, uh, um, and so if they're not sure about some of this, when they get questioned or attacked, uh, they're, they're, they may not respond too well. So I think this, this is an important subject. And, and I've said this before, those, those of us who here teach uh, kid, children and teenagers, probably one of the most important teaching place roles in the whole church. Uh, so really, it's a sacred trust, and it and it demands study and preparation to help do some things to instill within them an understanding of Scripture. It's it's uh, that it's God's word. It's inspired. So, and we'll talk more about. It. It's very very important. Um. All right, I'm ask you a question before we get in this quiz. I want you to just think about, you don't have to raise your hand, think about how many Bibles you own. In your house, apartment, wherever you live, how many Bibles do you think you own? How many of you think you have, uh, have uh, two or more? Raise your hand. Keep your hand up. How many of you think you have five or more Bibles in your house? Keep your, keep your hand up. How many of you think you have 10 or more? How about, how many of you say, let me jump. How many would, think, would say you have 20 or more Bibles in your house? Okay. Huh? You might? Yeah. I stopped counting. I got up to about 60 and I quit today. Uh, 
you take to the jail with you and distribute. So mine are all different. Some are the similar, but just have a lot of Bibles, a lot of different translations, paraphrases. Uh, we have a lot of those. And so we are spoiled people, privileged people to have so many copies of the Bible. Historically, up until probably, I don't, I don't really know, up until probably till the last, um, I don't know, it seems like publishers, uh, they're coming up with a new translation of the Bible all the time. Probably every, every couple of years there's a new one. I know that Lifeway is, is producing a new ESV study. Some of you may have that ESV study Bible. They're coming up with a new one that's condensed so it's not so thick. I mean, there's a new Bible, new translation coming out constantly. But prior to uh, probably the last 75 to 100 years, there weren't multiple translations of the Bible. And historically, there was only one. Right? There weren't multiple translations of the Bible. The, the Old Testament, I'm, I'm getting into this quiz part. So, um, and, uh, and if you, and the average person did not own their Bible. There weren't Bibles to own historically. Um, in the Old Testament, most people were illiterate even, even the majority of people through the first century were illiterate and they certainly didn't have their own Bible. How did they hear, how did they hear the word? Right, they would go to a synagogue or the Old Testament prophetic school or the same in the New Testament. The only way they would know the Bible was to hear it orally, to hear it to stories or to hear it Red. You, do you remember when Ezra, the Bible, when Ezra is coming back, comes out of exile, comes back to Jerusalem, he and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, had already come back and they were restoring the temple. Do you remember that the people hadn't heard the word for seven, some of them for 70, some of them maybe more than 70 years. They'd never even, they hadn't heard it. They certainly didn't read it. They didn't have anything to read. And it was only one translation. And so when Ezra describes that, that he read the scriptures and he read it all day and the people listened to it all day and it says they wept. So I'm just saying to you, we're spoiled people. We, we have the luxury of, uh, most of us will have multiple copies of the Bible and most of us will have a Bible app. <laughs> right? We have... Do what? You forgot about the app, okay? So we have so much access to God's word that previous, historically, people did not have. And I mentioned to you in 1450, 1440, somewhere in there, uh, the Gutenberg Press, that's one of the things that, allowed, that led to the Protestant Reformation for the first time in history, the scriptures could be mass produced. How were they produced prior to that? Right, Jewish scribes in the Old Testament would copy them, um, and that's how they were. That's how they were, uh, and and so you had to be 
it was a very significant thing if you hold it, if you had a copy of one of the Old Testament scrolls. But no, nobody had nobody had a Bible. Nobody had access to Scripture. That's totally unheard of. So, um, just some of those, throw those out for uh, to you. All right. So let's go through the quiz. Okay, y'all got a sheet? You good? So I covered this the last couple weeks. If you don't have a sheet, we got some. So David or Dale will get some to you. Let's see how you do. Uh, all right. Can you name at least one Bible reference regarding the inspiration of Scripture? At least one reference. How many of you can raise your hand? How many can get up? Tell me one, Ronnie. What? Do you know what it says? Who, who knows 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training unto righteousness. All right? So what's another verse on inspiration? So 2 Timothy 3.16. Someone else? 9 what? What's that one? I don't know that one, Joe. You looking it up? Okay. You going to quote it for us next week? Okay. Why she's looking that up. Who knows Hebrews 4.12? Carol, the word of God is living. It's alive. It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the division of joint, moral, soul, and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's so right. God speaks. God confronts to, through His Word. How many? Second uh, Peter one twenty and twenty one. Does somebody know that? You, you want to read that one? Um, um, what's your name, Patty? Second Peter one twenty twenty one. Joe, you have Nehemiah nine. Okay. Want you to read it real loud? Stand up. Okay, Nehemiah 9.3. Patty, you have one? Stand up and turn around so everybody can hear you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can't hear you. Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Knowing this first, no prophet, prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it never came from just men. Men spoke, wrote, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There's others, but those are, I would say, uh, the, the to lock in Second Peter one, Second Timothy three sixteen, and also Hebrews four twelve. Probably the strongest verses for the inspiration of Scripture. By the way, all of those references to the inspiration of Scripture refer to what? What scriptures are they referring to? Well, at that time, certainly the Old Testament, because when those letters were written, a New Testament didn't exist yet. So all of the references in the New Testament to the inspiration of Scripture all are referring to the Old Testament. Okay? 
which was all of, all of Jews, God's people recognize that be scripture. Okay, we'll keep moving. How many books are there in the Old Testament? Turn to your neighbor and tell them 39, all right? What is another word that is synonymous with testament that provides a definition? We talked about this. What's the synonym? So you have the Old Testament, the New Testament. What's another word for testament that's synonymous with that? You remember? I'll give you a clue. The old one has passed away in place of the new one. Covenant. So covenant, it could be really the old covenant and the new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says there is a new covenant and the old covenant has ended. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.25, Paul references when he's talking about the, and he, he talks about taking the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourself, right? No one should take this in an unworthy manner lest you bring sickness or death upon you, which sounds pretty serious when you come before before the Lord's table, right? And you remember that Paul even said some of the early Christians got sick and died. God's judgment came upon the church because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But he talks about this new covenant. Jesus talks about the new covenant in my blood. So old covenant, new covenant. What are the three major divisions of the Old Testament? Who, who wants to take a shot? What'd you say? History, wisdom, and prophets. What did you say? History, storyline. Okay, so yes, you're good. Good, three divisions. So you would have the law and history. Uh, so the law refers to what? What's the, what are the books of the Old Testament that are known as the law? The Torah or the Pentateuch. All the same thing, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. So Moses was known as the lawgiver. And so the first five books of the Old Testament are known as the law, Moses being the lawgiver. Why is Moses known as the lawgiver? What happened on Mount Sinai? God gave him the law. And so he, and, and those first five books make many references to Moses writing the law. Uh, he probably had some help because Deuteronomy 34 describes his death. So it's probably had some help in, in some of that writing. So the Old Testament, you have the five books of the Old Testament, the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, but you have some other books that are history, all right? So I've said this, if you take, the first 17 books of the Old Testament and you put them in order, you're going to get to what? What's the 17th book in the Old Testament? In our order, the way it's canonized in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, or Esther, Esther, okay? From, from Genesis to Esther, those first 17 books are the entire storyline of the Old Testament. If you never read, if you never read anything else, you just read those first 17 books, you would cover the entire history story of the Old Testament. 
the wisdom literature, which is the second vision, the writings, some, some could be called the writings or the wisdom literature. There's five. And so you remember 17 books of the law in history. That's the storyline, 17 books. Then you have five books of the writings, uh, uh, wisdom literature, which are Job, help me, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Five books of wisdom. So you have 17 in the first section, five in the middle, and then how many prophets? So if you take 17 and five, that's 22. So how many, how many prophets are left? Got to be 17. So 17, five, 17. 17, the law, storyline, five books, wisdom, literature, and then the last are 17 prophets. So those are the three major divisions. What are the, what are the two classifications of prophets? Major prophets and the minor prophets. What is the difference between the major prophet and a minor prophet? S size of the book, right? That's, that's all it is, <laughs> okay, major and minor. Um, what does the word canon, what does the word canon mean? It's the rule. It literally means rule or standard. And so when you're talking about the Old Testament canon or the New Testament canon, it is the books that are recognized in the Bible. This is the rule. This is the standard. These are the 39 books of the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament canon. This is the New Testament canon, 27 books. And so do we believe the canon is still open? What does that mean that we believe that we believe the canon is closed? What does that mean? Right. No more books are added. These are the inspired books of the Old Testament. So it's a closed canon, closed New Testament canon. It's set. And and they're the rule. That's the standard for the Christian life. That canon has authority to it for a Christian. It's the rule. It's the standard. So you think about a like a rule, a, 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 a yardstick or a rule, it's, it standardizes length, right? We have a standard. And so for the Christian, this canon is the standard. How many authors wrote the Old Testament? 30 authors over how many years? 1400 BC to, to 400 BC. So you have a period of 1,000 years. 400 years BC was from Malachi to the New Testament. So that was called the interbiblical period. So for 400 years before you get to the New Testament era, the Bible says there was no word from the Lord. Okay? And that's why Old Testament Jews were looking forward they believed in a Messiah. That a, you remember when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in, in John 4? She says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to speak. He's going to tell us all things. And so they had not received any word from the Lord. They were looking forward to the Messiah for when the Messiah would come, then there would be fresh revelation, uh, uh, more word. During that 400 years, no word. No prophets, nothing. It was part of God's judgment. The book of Amos, one of the minor prophets, talks about a coming famine 
on the land of Israel. And he says, it will not be a famine of bread, but there'll be a coming famine where no man will hear the word of the Lord. It's worse for God, you know, no, no words. So, uh, uh, what paper, the paper of the Old Testament scrolls were written on that was made from plants? Papyrus, right? The, what was the writing material made from animal skins? Parchment or vellum, right? So remember the riddle was killed, an animal was killed, skin was wet and then dried in the sun, scraped with a, why would you scrape leather? What are, you, what are you removing from it? Hair, right? So that, yeah, it was referring to a scroll or something. Um, what does the word codex mean? C-O-D-E-X, book form, okay? So the original Old Testament was written on what? A, a scroll, the average scroll in length, you remember? How big was a scroll? about 30 feet long, about 10, 10, 10 to 12 inches high. And so all the Old Testament books were in scroll form. So the, the, the laws of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those were five individual scrolls. And by the way, they had no vowels in them. And they were nonstop. You can go online, look up an Old Testament scroll, and it's just... It's crazy looking. Um, that would be like, if you think about the English language with no, no vowels, could you still read if there were no vowels? Yeah, probably. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a sentence. Yeah, if you just think of a sentence and you took out all the vowels, you still probably could pick out what it meant. But it wasn't until the fourth century there was some, so the Jewish scribes would copy the Old Testament scrolls. That's how they were, people got copies, those Old Testament scribes. In the New Testament, around the fourth century, there was a group of Jewish scribes called Masoretes. Have you heard of that, Masoretes? They're the ones who, for the first time, begin to add vowels into the Old Testament to make it easier for people to read. So they started dividing it off, and, and so... Um, little history there. Um, what language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Hebrew. Uh, we talk about average length of a scroll. The men in the Old Testament who were responsible for hand copying the scroll, scrolls were called scribes. Yep, you got it. So, uh, all right. How'd you do? Did you get, you think you, how many think you got, how many of you got most of them? How many feel like you, didn't do so well. <laughs> okay, uh, just that's this. That's just basic Bible thing. Um, if you teach, if you teach Sunday school class, it, it would be helpful to know that, right? To have a better understanding of the Old Testament. There. Um, when was the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, that language, what was it called? What was, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek. What was the Greek translation called? Septuagint. And some of you, if you're reading commentaries or reading books about the Old Testament, 
you'll see the Roman numerals LXX. That's an abbreviation for the Septuagint. I don't know where that came from. But if you're reading something about the LXX is a reference to the Septuagint. You'll see that in commentaries a lot. Um, and I don't know where that came from. But um, So in the New Testament, Jesus references the Old Testament constantly. Okay? He is constantly referencing the Old Testament. Which of the four Gospels was written to Jews? You remember? Matthew. Matthew's Gospel was written to Jews, and so it would make sense that Matthew's Gospel then has the most Old Testament quotations in it. Jesus is appealing to the Jews to understand that he's the Messiah, so he's constantly referring to the Old Testament. So let me give you some references. Have you never, Jesus raises this question to the scribes and Pharisees, have you never read from the scriptures? Referring to the Old Testament. Haven't you read the scripture? Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, from childhood, you have learned or known the sacred holy scriptures. Who taught Timothy the holy scriptures? Who taught Timothy the Old Testament? You remember? His mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Okay, his dad was a Greek. Probably wasn't even Christian. Second um, Timothy, all scripture is inspired, referring to the Old Testament. Now that certainly today, now that we have a New Testament, it's also referring to the New Testament. But in the day that it was orally preached and transmitted, those individual letters were all referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Jesus never had questions or doubts about the reliability and the sacredness of the Old Testament. You may hear people say, for example, they'll say a lot of the Old Testament is myth, it's allegory, and they'll refer to Jonah. There's no way that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish and spent three days. That's just allegory, a reference to Jesus, that Jesus is going to spend three nights in the earth and then be raised, and so the sign of Jonah... But that's not literal. It's just, just an allegory. You will hear that. Jesus referenced it literally. Um, and by the way, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fight over somebody if they, because I've known Christians who interpret a lot of things that way. I'm just glad they're Christians. We would still agree on the sign of Jesus and what the sign of Jonah referred to. But the, the thing that you get into is once you start explaining away Scripture, you're on a slippery slope and you can get to a point where you start explaining everything away. So one of the rules of good Bible study and good Bible interpretation is you always want to try to take it literally. Now, there's some passages obviously you don't take literally, right? Can you think of any? Can you think of any in the New Testament? You would... You don't want to take it literally. If your eye offends you, 
if that was literal, we would all, this whole church, we would be relying on Braille. <laughs> we would be eyeless. Hillcrest Baptist Church, they're all eyeless Christians. Um, if you've looked on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Well, it's not, I mean, the point is it's sin. If you, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. I think Mindy would prefer that all of you hate me instead of kill me. So, so you know, you, you, you do have to think and apply. And some of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is, is steeped in culture. The washing of feet, there, there's nothing. That was a cultural thing. The principle is humility and service. Um, right? I'm going on and on. Um, you're teaching a Sunday school class, all right? Dale's teaching. Somebody in the class says, well, okay, so all these Old Testament books were written on scrolls. Moses, Jeremiah, David, Solomon, you're right, 30, all these men wrote, all of the Jewish people recognized these as scripture with divine authority from God. So how did, how did they get put all together in a book? They were all just individual scrolls. How did, how, how did they, how were they gathered? How were they canonized? That's a good question. That's what we've been trying to look at. So, um, they were copied, and over a period of time, more and more copies of the law were available, more and more copies of wisdom, the writings, more and more copies of the prophets, as over time, Jewish scribes. And so there were these individual scrolls with all of these books that were read. Uh, they were read when, when God's people worshiped. They were read... Uh, what was the first meeting place? It was the tabernacle. And so Moses was reading the law. The, the, the Levites, the priests would read the law. And so they was copied. And then you, you just keep going through history. So whenever God's people would gather, the, the courts in the temple, the, the uh, priests would read. Now again, the people didn't have their own copies. So they, they listened by the way, do you, do you know that uh, when, a, when a Jewish boy, I don't know if they still do this, when a little Jew, what's the rite of passage for a Jewish boy when he becomes a man? Do you know what it's called? His what? His bar mitzvah. So when a Jewish boy is raised, a celebration of a, trans, a pa passage into, by the way, do we as Christians have any passages of manhood for a boy? No, what marks, what, in our culture, what marks the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What marked that rite of passage was his Jewish bar mitzvah. Um, what is it for us in the church? Methodists and other church will, at least the spiritual trend, they'll take you through um, confirmation. Catholics take you through confirmation. What do we do? <laughs> All right. So, uh, by the way, this is a little off subject. Some of you dads, 
if you want to pass along some rite of passage spiritually, buy Robert Lewis's book, Raising a Modern Day Knight. You hear that? Robert Lewis, Raising a Modern Day Knight. It could also be applied for a girl. Making sure that I do some spiritual things to help tr to provide a rite of passage. But probably the closest thing we have is getting your driver's license. You become a man or you get 18, then you become a man. But we don't really have much. And I, I like what we're doing as a church. Joe and um, Bill teaching a, a, a spiritual formation follow-up class for our kids started this Sunday. So trying to do some things to help ensure that. But by the way, if you, it's a really, I'm serious about that book. That's a really, really great book. I've completely lost my place. Um, so how, do, how were the books gathered? So they started being, they were kept, usually scrolls were kept in a large container in the temple, tabernacle, worship place, synagogues, they were kept there. Jesus, when he was 12, he met with the Pharisees in the temple and they were reading from a scroll. Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint. And he's, so those scrolls were kept, but prior to that, it was, it was believed during the time of Ezra. So when Ezra leads God's people out of exile and they come back, Zerubbabel is leading the charge to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is building the walls. Ezra is reestablishing the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all that's going on. For the first time, those books were starting to be gathered and put in some kind of order. Okay? So that's when it starts happening. And then uh, um, some order to it. Some of you, you'll see some references, some things called referred to as the Hebrew Bible. So we don't know exactly when all of that like became more nailed down, but it, it was. They, over a period of time, they established an order for those books. Um, certainly, certainly um, in AD 70, when the, Jerush, when the temple and Jerusalem was destroyed, remember when the Jews revolted against Rome, so they came in and destroyed everything? There was a little group of conservative Jews that lived west of Jerusalem in a little place called Jamnia, and so they collected to, in order to preserve it because when they went in, they destroyed scrolls, they destroyed God's word in the temple, all of that, st stole all of the, the gold and all the utensils, but they did that to preserve God's word and, and, and kept those books in order. And then, um, but certainly, uh, certainly by the time that um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew was translated into Greek, so 250 AD to uh, 150 to 250 AD, you remember when, when the world fell, the Greek Empire took control who was the man that championed that? The Greek Empire was Alexander the Great. And what city in Egypt was named after him? Had his name, Alexandria. All right? So as the Greek culture began to spread and Greek language began to spread, that's the Hebrews began to speak more. God's people didn't speak Hebrew anymore gradually over a period of time. And in order for the Old Testament, for, for God's people to read the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew, they couldn't anymore. Or if it was read, they could, if they heard it, they didn't understand because they 
Everything was moved to Koine, to this Greek. So the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. So talked about that. Um, all right. Let me shift gears. Let's talk about what questions do you have? How many think this is really boring? <laughs> How many think it's helpful? How many think it's confusing? <laughs> All right, we'll pick up some things. Uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about the New Testament. Um, so the Jews, God's people in the New Testament, um, and, and by the way, um, you know, I mentioned, I do want to, this came up in a Sunday school class a few weeks ago about Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Um, the the uh, I don't know whether have you have you heard of replacement theology? How, how many raise your hand? How many of you have heard of replacement theology? Okay, some of you have. So God's covenant in the Old Testament was to who? Covenant was to who? It was to his people, to, to the Jewish people. Started in Genesis 12 with Abram, okay? There, the covenant relationship was, and you, you have to think a little bit here, God doesn't break his, his, his word, right? God's promises are true. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. Christ fulfills, fulfilled the Old Testament covenant. So in the New Testament, the, um, there are those who would say God's covenant with Israel has ended. Israel never bore any fruit. They rejected the Messiah. When the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, all the priestly functions, sacrificial system, all of that ended. And so God's covenant with Israel is no longer in effect. Now his covenant is with who? The church. All right, so that's called replacement theology. That God's covenant is no longer with Israel, it's now with the church. And the church now is what God's doing, he's doing through the church. So hopefully we are bearing fruit, we are salt, we are light, we are taking the gospel to the nations. That we, do, we believe that, right? <laughs> okay, so it's been, so, it's, so I'm, I'm not a replacement theology guy, Okay. In fact, and so they would, there are many people who would say, God's done with Israel. The covenant is over. It's gone. Um, and his covenant now is with the church. And so everything that God's doing today is doing through the church. Uh, so the best way I know to explain that is, it would be the idea of a tree. In the Old Testament, God established or a vineyard. <laughs> God had a vineyard. 
and he planted it and cultivated it and watered it and gave it everything it needed to do to bear fruit. In fact, you'll see this imagery. And instead of producing grapes, it was wild. That's actually in the Bible. And it bore no fruit. So what is the chop, chop? So the idea would be the, the vine has been cut off and now there's a stump. And in the New Testament, the church is the new vine, the new tree, and we're going to bear fruit. But I believe the Bible is clear that God will go back and that old stump is still going to sprout. And, and in fact, if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says that he hardened Israel. God hardened, God caused their unbelief for the purpose of who being grafted in? Us, Gentiles. So we're grafted, but, and so the church, those who recognize Christ as their savior belong to the church and God's doing his work through the church, but I don't believe that God's, that old covenant that he still has with Israel is still in effect the way I understand the Bible. In fact, some of you have been teaching from the prophets, especially Zechariah recently, even in the Old Testament, he, he makes references prophetically to the end times where Israel's still going to be saved. And if you, if you read through the book of Revelation, I think it's very, very clear that there's going to be a great, uh, a great witness, uh, a great turning of faith to Christ among the Jewish people that he's going to restore and save Israel. That doesn't necessarily mean that a Jew still has to profess faith in Christ to be saved, but he's, there's going to be a great move of God's spirit. Another, Joel 2 Jesus said, the prophets foretold, Joel foretold during the last days God would pour out his spirit. That certainly happened at Pentecost and people were saved. But Revelation also teaches that there's going to be a, a greater, a further outpouring of God's spirit during the last days and the Jewish people would recognize their Messiah. So I'm just saying, I don't, I don't believe that God is done with Israel. And I would also say politically, it frightens me a little bit when more and more of our congressmen and senators who are ignorant of the Bible are turning away from Israel. I think it's a, it's a bad move. So, Roy, you have some? Yeah, absolutely. The latter days, the last days, the end time. So, from the, from the time of Pentecost to the pouring out, God's pouring his spirit. And so on the day of Pentecost, right, the Holy Spirit for the, for the first time began to indwell believers. The old temple done away. The new temple is what? Us. And so the spirit of God was with God's people in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he indwells us. So we're the temple, he indwells us. Um, and that age, this age that was church age, this dispensation that we're living in started in on the day of Pentecost, Jesus ascended, sent his spirit, and that has an end. The Bible is very clear that this current age, this church age, this dispensation will end. Jesus, even in the Great Commission, says, I will be with you to the end of the aeon, this aeon, this age, this dispensation, to the end of it. And then you get into the, certainly get into the New Testament and 
um, to certainly to the book of Revelation. Um, so let's talk about the New Testament a little bit in these books. How many books in the New Testament? 27, last time you count? It's closed, no more been added. Uh, what are the major divisions of the New Testament? What's the first division? The Gospels. How many Gospels? Four Gospels. What are the Gospels? John, so the four Gospels. Um, have you heard of the Synoptics? The Synoptic Gospels? So the word synoptic means common view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three are considered the synoptic gospels. They all have the same view, a little different emphasis each one. And so they're called the synoptic gospels. Um, John is not, I mean, it's a gospel, but John's style and emphasis is a little different than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and so he's the non-synoptic. So for what that's worth to you. So first division, the four gospels. Um, all, how would you explain to your grandson or son or daughter, why do we call, why do, why do we call Mark the gospel of Mark? What, what do we mean by the, well, you, what's the word gospel mean? Good news. So what is each gospel, what is it, what's the focus of each gospel? Jesus. His life, his ministry, his teaching, and his death, his death and resurrection. Each of the gospel focuses on the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Christ. Um, what's the shortest gospel? Mark. Mark is believed to be the first gospel written. And it's believed that Matthew and Luke also used the gospel of Mark as the Holy Spirit invited in the right. They used that one as a pattern to build off of that. But it's believed to be the earliest gospel. What's the second major division of the New Testament? What, what is it? So think about the gospels. You have the, the birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, resurrection of Christ. So after Christ is raised from the dead, what's the, think about chronologically what happens after Christ ascends. He descends, and then what do you have next unfolding in the New Testament? History, right? So it's the church, the book of Acts. So Acts is about history. Jesus said, I'll not leave you as orphans. The paraclete will come. My replacement will come. And the Holy Spirit will be able to do something and help you in ways that I can't. What was Jesus unable to do while he was on this earth with his disciples? He couldn't indwell and he couldn't transcendence. Jesus couldn't be at one, more than one place at one time. <laughs> All right, but the spirit, when the spirit comes, my replacement, he will be with you. He'll dwell in you. He'll guide you into truth and provide an anointing for you and convict you, do, do, do all the things that the spirit of God does. And so you see that happening. Jesus ascends to the father. Um, after his resurrection, he appears on this earth. How many days? 
40 days post-resurrection appearances, bolstering the faith of his apostles. He ascends back to heaven. Day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon them. They hear the gospel in their own language. That's tongues. It wasn't ecstatic utterance. It was an actual language where each person, each Jew, heard the gospel in their own language. So the Jews had been dispersed. Some spoke Greek. Some of the Parthians, Midian, they were from other places. And so on the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached, they each heard the gospel in their own language. God broke down barriers to advance the gospel. Jesus said to the disciples, his last words, you shall be my witnesses starting where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So on the day of Pentecost... The gospel is beginning to advance. People hear the gospel in their own languages. They go back. What happened? You remember on on Pentecost or uh, Passover, Jews were required to come back to Jerusalem. And so you had these Jews who spoke other languages, living in other parts of the world, came back, heard the language. They go back, take the gospel with them. And then the book of Acts is history. There's two sections in the book of Acts. The first section fulfills... You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. The first half of the, not even half, first several chapters of the book of Acts is about primarily about one apostle. Who is it? Peter. And Peter is ministering, reaching, the first half of the book, he's reaching Jews. In fact, Peter still got some hangups where he didn't, he didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. Remember, Remember the sheet, Acts 10, Cornelius, the vision, Peter, you know, Peter. But then, so the second half of the book of Acts is about which apostle? Paul taking the gospel to Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. So in the book of Acts, you see the fulfillment of you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's the history book. And it's how, how the church got started, the growing pains, things that happened, all, the, all of the opposition in the book of Acts, demonic opposition, persecution. Uh, persecution breaks out in Jerusalem against, the, against Christians. And so who's the guy that's leveraging that? Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Jew, hates Christians. So he's persecuting Christians, and so Christians flee for their lives. They go north. They're going in different directions. It's fulfilling fulfilling the advance of the gospel. God is using persecution to drive the gospel. By the way, you go back and you study the history of the church. Any of you do church history? The church always has flourished during persecution. When does the church not flourish? When it's like it is in the U.S. It internally implodes. First threat against the church in the book of Acts was hypocrisy. We're poor people in the church. And the church was trying to minister to those poor people in the church. And so Barnabas, the encourager, sells, he's wealthy, sells off his land, comes and brings all that he has, lays it at the feet of the apostles and says, use this to minister to the needs of the church. And 
some another couple, Ananias and Sapphira, say, hey, man, he got some attention. He got some lime like that. So they go off and sell land, but they don't give it all, but they purport and make people think that they've given it all. And so the first threat against the church was hypocrisy. What does God do? God deals with it. And they die. Pretty, pretty interesting there, too. Peter is discerning. He knows that he's lying. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, drops dead. She comes in there, doesn't know what happened. She drops dead. It's, it's just that, you, by the way, I'm glad that God does, God is not disciplining his church like that today. <laughs> right? How does God discipline the church today? He does it through the elders. The church needs to practice discipline. The reason why we're fat and lazy and not being fruitful, not reaching the loss is because we're, we're sinful. The membership is sinful and passive. We've got members who have never been in the doors in years. People into all kinds of worldly things, idolatry and stuff. And people living together, not married. People going through divorces, people doing things, and we just sweep it under the rug, and then we wonder what's wrong with the church. The discipline has been extended. If you study the New Testament, God expects the leadership of the church to discipline the members. I'm glad he's not doing it like he did in Acts. <laughs> right? And, and I would, let me also say a word about discipline. Uh, discipline is not just kicking people out of the church. Discipline is a culture. So, that I'm a brother with Bill Kouser and we're friends, we're brothers in Christ. And if I see Bill saying something or do something, then I would say, hey man, and he, he's my brother, so I'd talk to him and hold him accountable. That's church discipline, accountability, right? To keep us, to keep us both accountable. So it's not just removing members, it's much bigger than that but it has to do with the health. Of the, so God is concerned about his bride being pure and spotless without wrinkle, without blemish. He wants it to be a pure bride. But there are things that happen in church and we just let it go. Just, well, they might get upset. Somebody, people just kind of do whatever they want to do. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on, am I, I'm on a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> Right? So, there, but there ought to be some things that we expect from members, expect from each other, holding each other accountable in a loving way. Right? Galatians 6, if you see somebody overtaking a trespass. By the way, if you were a friend here and you, you had a, you're a young person and you have a young couple that grew up with this church and your buddy and his girlfriend move in together, you should, as a young man, you should go to your buddy and say, man, what are you doing? This is not God's best for your life. So it's not just the leaders. It's a, it should be something that we, well, I don't do that. You get, <laughs> okay? So um, that's the second section. Then just close, the two other sections of the New Testament are the epistles. Paul writing to churches. By the way, be encouraged does, does Hillcrest have some problems and some issues? How many of you say, yeah? Yeah, it starts with me. Don't, you know, don't be discouraged by that. 
none of the New Testament epistles would exist if the church didn't have problems. Every letter in the New Testament was written to address issues. Think about Corinth, the church at Corinth. Guys sleeping with his mother's, with his dad's wife, young man in the church sleeping with his dad's wife, and people in the church are filing lawsuits against each other, and people hate each other and won't take the Lord's Supper together, and some are coming together to take the Lord's Supper and getting drunk, and there's divisions in the church. I like Paul, I like Cephas, I like Apollos, and so I'm siding with Dale in this group. No, I think they're wrong. I'm going to side with David in this group, and people get all sided up and come to church. Well, I mean, worship wars in, in church at Corinth, over singing, tongues, disorderly worship. I mean, the, that's why I said I don't know why anybody would want to name their church Corinth Baptist Church. It, it's, I, I, it's, I, just, I don't understand that. <laughs> but I'm just saying the, that's the epistles. The epistles were written to address problems, to provide guidance. So you learn, you learn some doctrine Learn some things from the teachings of Jesus. You can learn some things in the book of Acts, certainly Romans. But the application of doctrine you see in the epistles. How did the church address problems? You study the epistles. Of course, in the last, the fourth part of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. This age is going to end, right? So... We'll, we'll stop there. I'm going to try to get into ins, the inspiration of Scripture. What do we mean? Talk about inspiration. How did the how did this inspire? How did the Holy Spirit inspire these guys to write? And then we'll talk a little bit about translations. I don't I don't know how many translations of the Bible there are anymore. It's it's uh, mind boggling. So, but um, but back historically, there was only one translation: the Hebrew. Then it was the Greek. <laughs> That's what everybody had. Uh, New Testament was all written in Greek. Later in the fourth century, Jerome goes back to the Hebrew, translates it into Latin. But there weren't all these multiple translations of the Bible. That didn't exist till. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Hey, good to see you. I, I hope, hope something helped you a little bit, maybe. All right.